This morning we we are going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. If you have a Bible this morning, you can get there. Um, There's one under your pew if you don't have one, or you can just read along on the screen. Here it is. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions. So last week we talked about the idea of partnering with others in the gospel. I don't know if you remember that. It's been a whole week. But we talked about partnerships and how how about partnering with, with each other in the mission of the gospel can be tricky. We talked about how partnering with people in our community other Christians that aren't necessarily our denomination can be tricky because maybe we disagree on some things. We talked about how oftentimes that partnering with others in the gospel, especially those that you aren't exactly like-minded with, can be like walking a tightrope or like walking a balance beam. We talked about that is where Paul was in Galatians 2, 6-10 last week. He was, taught, he was walking this tightrope, giving proper respect and honor to the other apostles, yet protecting and maintaining his own authority and his own right to stand among these other apostles as equals. And the question is why? Why was he doing that? Why was he laying all that foundation? Why was he going back and forth, paying respect to Peter, James, and John, as well as insisting that he had just as much right to teach and preach and lead as those other guys? Well, the reason why was because of why he wrote the letter in the first place. There were Judaizers that had infiltrated the Galatian church, and they were chipping away at the foundation and framework that Paul had laid from the very beginning. Paul started that church. It wasn't his church, it was Christ's church, but he had a vested interest in the church at Galatia because it was his baby. And now that he's away, now that he's away, these these people have come in, these false teachers have come in, and they're starting to chip, chip, chip away from the foundation that Paul laid. And it makes them furious. They were insisting that simply believing in the gospel was not enough. 
that simply following Jesus wasn't enough. They were starting to twist and turn the gospel. The teachings that Paul had taught and, and, and began to teach, and they began to teach that the whole gospel, the full gospel, wasn't Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but instead it was Jesus plus everything from before equals everything. And the reason why Paul did all that in the verses that we looked at last week was so he could say what we are looking at this week. Paul wants people to know that Peter and him were both to be respected. Peter, you know, Peter, the disciple. Of course he was going to be respected. But Paul wanted people to know that that Peter was Paul's equal and vice versa. Equals? Equals have the ability to call someone out when they are wrong. Subordinates don't. Right? It was really important that Paul be viewed as an equal to the other apostles. And not just some junior apostle. Not just some some tag-along wannabe rock star, right? Paul was no subordinate. He was no junior apostle. Paul was Peter's equal. And then when Paul had to call Peter out, he did. Look at verses 11 to 12. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Listen, Paul was very blunt with Peter. I don't know how much I would want to be Paul's friend. He was just a blunt guy. He was abrasive, and he never would sugarcoat anything he said. I have a feeling that when you ran with Paul, you better have a pretty thick skin, because he's not going to pull any punches. There's a show I used to watch weekly. I I loved this show. It was a show called House. Anybody ever see this show? Now, this show, this Hugh Laurie, I love Hugh Laurie, okay? He's one of my favorite actors. He's just... British, and he's got an American accent in this, which is fun. Um, but the guy's a jerk. Like, I mean, if you've seen the show, he's, he's an absolute jerk, but he's brilliant, right? He's this brilliant guy that can diagnose anything. You can't figure out what's going on. You're dying. You want House to be your doctor, right? But, man, he would just say whatever he wanted. He didn't care anything. He was mean. He was just, he was just a bad, like, I don't think I'd want to be friends. I mean, while I enjoyed watching the show, I don't think I'd want to be friends with House, right? He would say some things, I'm sure, that were not very kind toward me. But if I had a problem in this fictional world, if I had a problem and I couldn't figure out what is going on with me, I'm dying of some crazy illness that no one can figure out, I want Dr. House to be my doctor. I don't think I'd want to be friends, but man, I'd want to be my doctor 
if things were crazy. I think Paul was like that. And when I say that about Paul, we have to remember that Paul was doing something of the utmost importance. The church was brand new, right? The church was was in its infancy. If Paul did not help churches to have the proper foundation, if they weren't teaching the right things, then the church would fail. The church was and today is too important to fail. It is God's plan. The church is God's plan to reach the world. So sometimes, such as this letter to Galatia, Paul had to be blunt. He had to be direct, and he couldn't pull any punches. And this morning, let's not pull any punches either. Let's be blunt. Let's take a look at one of the huge problems in our culture, in the church, and let's find a biblical solution. So here's, here it is. Galatians, the problem and the solution. The problem is hypocrisy. Paul identifies the problem with what Peter is doing right off the bat. He calls it for what it is, plain as day. Hypocrisy. The problem with many modern-day churches, as well as the church in Galatia, and as Paul points out, as the problem with Peter, is hypocrisy. Look at verse 12. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. There is Peter, the one who is called, the one who is commissioned by Jesus to feed my sheep. You remember that? We see Peter afraid of what other people are going to think. So he then withholds from doing what he knows to be right so that he can gain favor with those that he has deemed more important. Which begs the question, if Peter is a hypocrite, what chance, what hope, do I have? We're talking about Peter. So let me get this out of his way. Really, when it truly comes down to it, we are all hypocrites, every one of us. We have all done things that we know to be wrong. And so what is that called? Well, that's the definition of hypocrisy. Romans 3 says it like this, verse 23, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Paul isn't calling Peter out for sinning one time. That's not what's going on here. What Paul is calling out Peter for is continually sinning in the same way even when he knows it's not right. The hypocrisy that kills is not committing a sin, a singular sin. It's not struggling with some sin. That is not the hypocrisy that kills. 
what kills. The, what, the sin that kills our spiritual selves is a hypocrisy that is so egregious. It is done in such a way that you are judging and casting blame on others while you are doing the same thing ten times worse and you don't even care anymore. That's the hypocrisy that kills. Because what that makes you is that makes you a Pharisee. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a Pharisee was not a good thing when Jesus was around because Jesus went after the Pharisees over and over and over again. In essence, hypocrisy refers to the act of claiming to believe something, but acting in a different manner. The word is derived from the Greek term for actor, which is literally one who wears a mask. In other words, someone who pretends to be what he is not. I, I found these, these memes, there's, there's several of them. You know, you see memes all the time on, on the internet, Facebook, whatever, Twitter. But I found these, I, I liked them. One of these hypocrites are rather easy to recognize. They spend most of their time pointing out the flaws in others and, to the, and the rest of the time trying to flaunt their own perfection. There's another one. The greatest single, this is from Brendan Manning, who is a phenomenal writer, was. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Another one. I would rather be known in life as an honest sinner than a lying hypocrite. Here's one more. A person's character is shown through their actions in life, not where they sit on Sunday. I think all those things are speaking to what we're talking about. And here's the, here's the fact of the matter. It is egregious when we as Christians are hypocrites because the world is watching us. The world is watching you. The world is watching me. They're seeing what we're doing. They're seeing what we're all about. And if we say one thing and then live in a totally different way and not even give a care in the world about the fact that we're living in exact opposition to what we've been saying, the world sees it and finds it unbelievable. Jesus talked about hypocrisy a lot. Over and over again, he called out and confronted the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the law on their hypocrisy. Teaching the people something very hard to achieve and then acting in a manner contrary to that teaching. And all the while, looking down on others when they themselves were more flawed. You want some some verses from Jesus? Here we go. Here's Matthew 6, 1. Watch out. Don't do good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 7, 5. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Matthew 23, 27. 
when sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Do you think that maybe Jesus didn't like hypocrisy much? We are all sinners. It's a fact. However, we must work to rid ourselves of the hypocrisy mentioned here. We must stop judging everyone else. We must stop pointing out another, another speck of dust in their eye when we have a log jammed into ours. This is why the Bible says that we should not be quick to want to be a church leader. Look, look at James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Hypocrisy is a serious thing. And if you are a teacher, if you are a leader in the church, you are held to a higher standard. One really needs to take a hard look at one's life before aspiring to serve God's church as a servant leader. The last thing we want in this world is for Jesus to judge us harshly, to equate us with the Pharisees. So that was the problem. Hypocrisy. Now let's look at the solution. It's confronting people in love. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? One quick note on this. Everyone doesn't need to be confronted by you or me. Everyone doesn't need to be confronted by you or me. I want to be careful when I say this, because everyone will be confronted. Everyone will be judged at some point. When the trumpet sounds, when the king comes again, he will confront everyone. He will confront everybody. All will be confronted. He will judge everyone. How we want to be on the right side of things when he does, right? However, Judging, condemning, that's not our job. We are not to judge and condemn the whole world. That is not our job. In fact, might I go as far as to say, there are actually few people that you or I should actively confront. Yet, With those few people, if they need to be confronted, we better, as a Christian, as a believer, we better step up and do it. Because that's the way that it's been set for us. So let's look at, real quickly, three criteria for deciding if you should confront someone. Number one, do they follow Jesus? Listen, we cannot hold someone who is not a Christian to a Christian standard. We just can't. 
This, of course, doesn't mean that you should never confront a non-Christian, right? That's not what I'm saying. But if a non-Christian is not acting like a Christian, you shouldn't be like, why aren't you acting like a Christian? Why should they? If they're not a Christian themselves, why would they? What we should be worried about is when we see someone that we know and that we love that confesses to be a, a Jesus follower, a loving person of Jesus, we should then say, okay, is this person living a life that they need to have something pointed out to them in love? Number two, do you love them? No, do you really, genuinely love this person and do you want to see them win? Or are you just using this as an excuse to judge someone, to, to put someone in their place, to feel superior? Do you genuinely love them? Do you want to see them win? And the number, third, number three is, have you earned it? Have you earned it? As a dad, I've earned the ability and the right to confront my daughter and my son, right? Have I earned that? Yes. Have I earned the right to confront someone off the street? Well, probably not. Have I earned it? Do I have that relationship? Do I have a loving relationship with that person where where I can do that in, in love and we can be okay? And the next thing with that is, have I inspected my own eye before I peck out, pick out a speck of dust in somebody else's? Do I have a plank in my eye? Do I have a log you know, in my eye, and I'm trying to point out other people's flaws? Because let me tell you something. If somebody comes to confront me about something that I've done, but they do it way worse than I do, I'm not going to listen to that person. Three criteria. Several years ago, I became a certified prepare, enrich, premarital counseling facilitator. All right? Several people in this church have gone through premarital counseling with Heather and I, and it's a great, great thing. But hear this correctly. I am not a certified counselor. Rather, I have taken the training from Prepare and Enrich to facilitate their excellent premarital counseling sessions and provide premarital counseling for couples. And this has really been a really good thing. The first thing we learn in these sessions is that the majority of marriages, after following Jesus, right, the majority of these marriages rise and fall based on how couples deal with communication and how they deal with conflict. Paul and, uh, what did you say? Doug and Pam, Paul, Doug and Pam, we, you know, we, we spent a couple sessions talking about um, assertive statements and saying things like, I need, or I feel, and not finger pointing, and trying to be effective, good communicators. And so when there's confrontation that has to happen within the marriage, because let me tell you something, there's If you've been married about five minutes, you know there's always confrontation and conflict that happens in your marriage. How to effectively speak 
to someone so that they feel loved and valued and that you feel like you're being heard and how to deal with confrontation and conflict in a good way. And we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about that. Marriages rise and fall based on how the couples deal with communication, how they deal with conflict. And while I appreciate Paul, can I just say that there may be a reason why the guy was single. Because if I ever called my wife out on the things that, the way that Paul did, I would sleep on the couch about five or six days a week, right? It's pretty rough. What I do love about Paul, though, is that he wanted to deal with the conflict head on. He wanted to clearly communicate what he needed from the church, what the church needed, and that they needed to be dealing with conflict. Similarly, those exact things are what marriages need to do to thrive and survive. Clear communication of needs, of wants, and dealing with conflict before it explodes, before the conflict becomes a forest fire that is too big to contain, too big to stop. I love in verse 14, the word following, or if you have an NIV, it's the word not acting in line. That is actually a Greek word, orthopodo. And the actual word, if you think about it, ortho is a bone doctor, right? Well, that, that term comes from the fact that the doctors used to make their bone, bones straight in children, right? So ortho, ortho, podo, podo, a podiatrist is a foot doctor, right? Straight-footed is what that term means. Not, it, it, we translate to following, but it actually means straight-footed. And I love that imagery, because what happens when a bunch of people are walking all together, but they are not walking with their feet straight? Pretty soon you don't have a line anymore. Pretty soon you just have a jumble of people, this and that, like over here and some over there. And that's not what we are looking for. When we, in a marriage, when we don't communicate well, when we don't confront each other and love well, then the next thing you know, you are way over here, and I am way over here, and we aren't together. When the, we in the church don't communicate well, when we don't confront our brothers and sisters in Jesus and love well, then the next thing you know, we really aren't the church anymore. Now we are just a bunch of people wanting what I want, wanting what what, what needs I have to be met. And it's no longer about us and him, but it's about me and me. With relationships in the church, in our community of other Jesus followers, if we see someone that is going the wrong way, someone that has gone off the rails, maybe is taking others down a bad path as well, if we see that and we can answer yes to those three questions, those three criteria... Do they follow Jesus? Do they love them? Do you love them? Have you earned it? Then yes, please find a way to confront each other in love. Always in love. But if not, if you can't answer that question, all three questions correctly, can I encourage you to be quiet? To stay quiet? Pray for someone who can answer yes to all three of those criteria, Pray for someone 
that is like that to be raised up to confront that person in love. And as I say that, I want to say this one last thing. Prayer should never be a last resort. It should never be a last resort. Prayer should be our strategy to win the war, to accomplish the Father's will on earth. Revelation 8, 1 through 5. I love the imagery. Because they opened the seal. You guys remember this? They opened the seal, and it says, Then heaven was quiet for about half an hour. I love the imagery. As incense came wafting up into heaven. Do you know what that incense was? It was the prayers of the saints. It was the prayers of God's church. And what I love about verse 5, it says that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, incense rising, prayers of the saints, and then, then the angel took the censer, filled it. Now listen, this is what happens when you pray. He filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of lightning and thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That is what happens when we pray. Do you understand? When you pray, heaven is quiet. And then, and then, the power of God is unleashed on earth. Can there be anything more powerful? Prayer has to be your strategy to win the war. It has to be. If you want to confront somebody, you better pray about it. You better pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray if confrontation needs to happen, should it be you or should it be somebody else? Pray the Holy Spirit would remove your blinders as well as the ones that need the one that needs to change to remove their blinders. James 5:16 The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. One last thing, one last thing, never be too right, never be too righteous to think that perhaps God might need to use someone in your life to confront you. One last meme I found. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I make hypocritical decisions. Yes, I fall, I stumble, I struggle. I am a mess. But I am God's mess. And he can turn a mess into a masterpiece. Folks, God wants to turn you into a masterpiece. And that means receiving confrontation and criticism from people that love you. And also means giving it in love. When that happens, God has a masterpiece on his hands.